Most of you have heard or even owned a red-letter edition Bible. In fact, the Bible that I have in front of me and have had for years is such an edition. As you likely know, a red-letter Bible has the words of Jesus in red. It's very helpful, but it also presents at least a couple of challenges. First, you do understand that the manuscripts that we received did not come with red ink. So the translators have to decide which words Jesus spoke and which ones the gospel authors were just writing. You see, there are not any quotation marks in the Greek either, so sometimes the translators are just guessing. Did Jesus say this? Or, for example, is Mark now speaking? Should these letters be in red or in black? It's not a huge challenge, but sometimes they guess. For example, John chapter 3. It's difficult to know where Jesus... Words end and John's begin. Some discussion about that. But second, more subtle, but perhaps a greater challenge is this. We, the readers, have a tendency to give more weight to the red letters, right? I mean, if Jesus said it, it's more important, right? The the, the problem with that, of course, is that all of the words of the Bible are inspired, All are the inerrant Word of God. It's all God's Word, whether Jesus spoke them audibly or not. In fact, there's a sense in which if we put all of the words of God in red, it'd all be red. But let's be honest. uh, While it is all God's Word, some passages or even entire books are, are, are not only easier to read, but in some cases, more meaningful. For example, it's probably a lot easier and more meaningful to read Romans than Numbers, Matthew than Leviticus. So with all of that as a backdrop, if I were to ask you what your favorite verse in the Bible is, or maybe say it a little bit more strongly, the most important verse or passage in the Bible, what would you say? (laughs) And now I suppose you're predisposed now to say, well, it's all important and you'd be right. But the the rabbis, both before and after Jesus, discussed this very question. And they actually came up with different answers. Remembering that they only had the Old Testament, what Old Testament passages would you say are most important? Give you a second to think about that. Well, here are some of the rabbi's answers. Uh, Some uh, said, well, it's got to be Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And as much as we quote that particular text, we might tend to agree. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll make your paths straight. That's that's a really good one. but, but, but still others said, no, 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 that's not right. It's got to be Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And you go, well, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good one. Most of us are quite familiar with that verse. And right now you probably have a tune running around in your brain. <laughs> a third one is a famous story about someone asking the rabbis Shammai and Hillel, two very important rabbis in Jewish history, which law was the greatest. It said the questioner asked it this way, tell me the whole law while I stand on one foot. In other words, don't be long-winded. Just give me an answer. The, The story goes that Rabbi Hillel answered 
with what's called the silver rule. Why is it called the silver rule? Rule? Well, now, the golden rule, which Jesus gave, says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. But Hillel stated it negatively, actually a couple hundred years before Jesus, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. This, he said, is the whole Torah. Everything else is just commentary. That's interesting. Everything's built on that. There were others, though, but the most popular, no doubt, was Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and following, which every pious Jew quoted every morning and every evening. It's called the Shema, which is the first word of the verse, which means simply to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And again, that's a, that's a great verse. I'm, it's the foundation of monotheism in both Judaism and even in Christianity. So, so what would you say? If you had to narrow down the over 31,000 verses in the Bible, which one is, is most important? And go ahead, you can, you can throw in the New Testament if you'd like. With a sign at many sporting events, some of us no doubt would say it's got to be John three sixteen for God so loved the world, right? He gave his one and uh, gave his only begotten Son. Or with the screen prints that are on well, pretty much everything, T-shirts and coffee mugs. Maybe it would be Philippians four thirteen. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Or if you were with us when we when we studied the book of Romans, I actually agreed with Dr. D.A. Carson when he suggested that Romans 3, 21 to 26, is the most important text in the Bible. So that's obviously my answer. What is yours? One day, Jesus was asked that very question. You see, the rabbis used to discuss it. Jesus was asked the question, what was his answer? You see, his answer is in red letters. What did he say? And why did he say it? Look at it with me. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 and following in our continuing study of the book. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing. Them is Jesus and the Sadducees from last week. And and recognizing that he had answered the Sadducees well, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost or the first of all. Jesus answered, red letters. The foremost, so the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Wow. Could it then be said that the text that we're looking at, according to Jesus, is the most important text in the Bible? Scribe said to him, got it right, teacher. You have truly stated that he is one and there is no one beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and, and to love one, one's neighbor as himself is, is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently or wisely, coherently is the idea, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him 
Any more questions? Jesus quoted the Shema and, and the verse after that, which actually was part of the Shema, as the first or the foremost of all. And then he added a second, Leviticus 19, verse 18, no extra charge. So Deuteronomy and Leviticus, two books that you likely speed through in your Bible reading, Jesus quoted. Why did Jesus answer with these? Obviously, the scribe is impressed, but, but why these? Are these verses the foundation of the Christ, Christian ethic, if you will? I'm not, not talking about the gospel, not replacing the gospel, but are these the foundation of the Christian ethic? That is, the way that we live our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, namely, Love people, love God. Actually, in reverse order. I've taught this text before. It's actually not here in Mark chapter 12. I taught it in Matthew chapter 22. But I have to tell you that this week, this passage hit me in a profound way. Unique way. You see, I, I had to ask myself the question, if this is the basis of the Christian ethic, does it describe me? Does it describe Alliance Bible Fellowship? Does it describe you? Say your name, and what's the first thing that come, comes to people's minds? You see, I have a feeling, I have a feeling that I know the first thing that comes to people's mind when, when you say Scott Andrews or Alliance Bible Fellowship. I'm not sure that it's love. This passage impacted me in a profound way this week. So let's look at it. You remember we are in the midst of Jesus' Passion Week. It's Tuesday. He will be put to death on Friday because greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. During this time, Jesus was forced to do battle with enemies, the religious and political leaders of his day. In fact, um, we're in a section that sees three different groups attacking Jesus, asking him questions, trying to trap him, test him, discredit him, either before the crowds or before the Roman authorities. It didn't matter which. The first group to attack was the Pharisees and the Herodians. Their question, tell us, teacher, is it lawful to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Jesus' brilliant reply was, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God's. Great answer, Jesus. One down, two to go. Next group were the Sadducees. We looked at them last week. Their question was designed to disprove the resurrection. How appropriate for Resurrection Sunday. You see, they denied life after death and 
You, you remember they posed a question which involved a, a woman who had um, several hus- seven husbands because of the Leveret marriage responsibility, whose wife will she be in the resurrection, she, seeing that she has been married successful, successful, successively, not successfully, <laughs> Just saying, <laughs> no children, uh, successively to seven brothers. Again, Jesus' answer was brilliant. You're mistaken. You're wrong. You don't understand the Scripture nor the power of God. The power of God will result in a future life that is completely different than anything that we've experienced here. So quit superimposing earthly categories on heavenly realities. If you think earthly relationships are great which they are, (laughs) wait till heaven. That's what he's saying. Not only that, Sadducees, you don't understand the Scripture. One of your favorite verses, if I asked you the question, you may have said Exodus chapter 3, where God says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Good answer, Jesus. Two down, one to go, which brings us to the third group. The scribes. Our text this morning. Now, Mark's account of this encounter is frankly quite different than Matthew's. Matthew says when the Pharisees saw Jesus had silenced their enemies, the, the, the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, this scribe, asked Jesus his question to test him, uh, to trap him. That's why I had been suggesting that there were three groups of people who sought to test Jesus discredit him with their questions. So, so what's going on here? Matthew makes this guy out to be an opponent. Mark seems to make him a fan. Which one is it? Here's what I would suggest happened. Yes, a variety of groups came to trap Jesus, most notably Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians, okay? Political religious groups. Now, remember that the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body, was made up of chief priests, um, scribes and elders. That's their occupations. Now, now those groups, chief priests, scribes, and elders, were largely Pharisees or Sadducees, which was their political religious affiliation. Think, Think Democrats and Republicans, okay? That's their political affiliation, but they may be lawyers, doctors, Indian chiefs, whatever. Now, now the chief priests were largely Sadducees, and the scribes and elders were largely Pharisees. And these two groups were bitter enemies, arch rivals. So when Jesus silenced the Sadducees about the resurrection, the the, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, so they're pleased. They at least agreed on this point, but they're still opposed to Jesus, so they're going to take their best shot through this particular scribe who himself was a Pharisee. But again, Mark tells us that he's impressed with the way that Jesus silenced or handled the Pharisee, uh, the Sadducees, but he asks this question anyway, seeking to trap Jesus, and finds himself impressed again. N- know this, this is the only time that a scribe is mentioned positively in all of Mark's gospel. They're, they're always out to get Jesus, even here, but he leaves impressed. What's the difference? What's the deal with this particular scribe? We'll come back to that when we close. So three questions, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, and the scribe. We get to the end, and we look around the ring, and all of the opponents are down for the count. As I said over the last couple of weeks, there's no way to defeat this guy in a fair fight, which means soon, very soon, they will resort to unfair tactics. Now, 
We've heard this passage before. In fact, I bet that some of you, when I asked the question a moment ago, what's the most important, you maybe came up with this one. Good for you. The problem we face is one of familiarity. Love God, love people. What's that mean? And is that how we're known? Let's look closely to see if we can discover the depths of its meaning. Jesus says the greatest commandments are to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Again, I answer the question, does that mean, as, as it relates to the Christian ethic, this is the most important text we will ever look at? I say these are pretty important. We need to know what it means to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to know what it means to love neighbor as ourselves. I'll give you the outline. is four simple points that actually just guide us through the conversation. Scribes question, Jesus answers. Scribes reply, Jesus reply. Those last two we'll just look at briefly at the end. Jesus had silenced the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees. Things are not looking too good for the home team, so the Pharisees decide to jump back into the fray. They, they gather together in a group. They approach Jesus. One of them, this Pharisee scribe, um, asks his question. Now, what is a scribe? We, we looked at that all the way back in chapter 1. He was considered an expert in the law, both in understanding and teaching the Bible, well-versed in the law of Moses. That's religious law. But the Mosaic law also had a civic or civil function, a scribe who knew then the law could be also rightly called a lawyer, one who had the ability to apply the law to the affairs of life. He was considered then a theological and civil expert. And so certainly he would be considered more than a match for this unlearned carpenter turned rabbi from Galilee. You should know that by this time the rabbis, along with the scribes, had to come up with 613 613 different laws in the Mosaic Law, all of which, of course, flowed from the Ten Commandments, which is kind of interesting because they said uh, in the Ten Commandments, in the original Hebrew, it contains 613 letters. So 613 laws from 613 letters in the Ten Commandments. Isn't that amazing? Do you see the significance? Neither do I. They also divided those laws into both positive and negative laws, thou shalt and thou shalt nots, things you're supposed to do, things you're not supposed to do. There were supposedly 248 positive laws, one for every part of the body, the Pharisees said. I'll let you medical people figure that out. But there were 365 prohibitions, <laughs> one for every day of the year. Every day of the year, you can contemplate a, something you're not supposed to do. Isn't that special? Not only that, they divided the law into heavy and light laws. As you would expect, the heavy ones were considered most important, binding, everyone had to keep. The light ones were, were, were not considered as important, not as binding, maybe even somewhat optional. We do the same thing today. My, most of us would never consider armed robbery, but we do occasionally uh, drive 40 down 105, maybe on the way to church today. You do know the speed limit is 35. 
Jesus even acknowledged this division of the law in Matthew 23 when he said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe of your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. <laughs> you count out your seeds and give a tenth of them, but you don't give a rip about justice and mercy and, and faithfulness. What's interesting is what Jesus says in the next verse. These things you should have done, that is, you should have tithed on your seeds, go ahead and do that, without neglecting the others. In other words, there may be important laws, but, but, but you're ignoring the important ones, and besides, you should be doing all of them. I'll let you apply 35 on 105. Okay. <laughs> just don't, just don't look at me when I pass you. Now, there, <laughs> there was disagreement between the rabbis as to what made you holy, which laws were heavy and which ones were light. And so the scribe thought, certainly Jesus will say something that we can take him to task on, no matter what he says, uh, we'll, we'll have him. We'll show him up to not be as holy as everyone really thinks that he is. I mean, he, he will likely say something like, don't murder, <laughs> thou shalt not murder, instead of something really important like, thou shalt wash your hands before every meal. Legalists that they were. So the, they were poised, the trap was set, which brings us to the next point, Jesus' answer, verses 29 to 31, red letters. While, while they might have expected Jesus to quote one of the Ten Commandments, Jesus actually quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, some verses in Numbers, uh, or 6, 4 and 5, I should say, and then Leviticus 19, which is critically important. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following, along with those other verses in Deuteronomy and Numbers, that's what I meant to say that, formed that Shema. As I suggested, every good Jew stopped to recite uh, the Shema twice a day. Not only that, it was a favorite passage to carry in their phylacteries and place in their mezuzahs. You say, what are those? Well, phylacteries were those leather or wooden pouches, boxes that they tied to their forearms or to their, or, or to their uh, foreheads. Mezuzahs were little boxes that they attached to their door frames of their houses. You remember from uh, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, you kiss it on the way in. In those pouches or those boxes, they placed pieces of Scripture. Most notably, the favorite was the Shema. The practice came, you see, right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, which they took literally. You shall bind these laws as a sign on your hand or on your, as frontals on your forehead, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. The, the, the point was this. These guys knew these verses. Their problem was the same as ours, familiarity. They were committed to reciting them, carrying them, posting them, everything but obeying them. Jesus said that law, the one that you quote every day, the one that you should know with your head but ignore with your heart, that's the one that's most important. We should take notice. What are you known for? Now, what does it mean to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? It means to love God with every, listen, it means to love God with every part of your being. The heart speaks of the core, the essence of who you are. The soul speaks of your desires and emotions. The mind speaks of your intellect. The strength speaks of your power or your will. 
In other words, with every capacity you have, you love God. Love him with everything that you've got. In other words, God doesn't just want external compliance, right? Tithing off of seeds. He wants your heart. It's a reckless abandon to God with everything, devotion, loyalty, sacrificing everything because we love him completely. So you walk it in this morning, maybe I'm standing in the back and I ask you this question, what do you, just get in your face, what do you love most? What is it? What do you love most? The word Jesus uses for love is agape. We've all heard there are three words, maybe four. Um, for love in the Greek, there's eros, which is a sensual love. Phileo, storge is the other one, a, a, a brotherly love. And then agape, which is the strongest form of love. It, we all heard of it as a self-sacrificing love. It's, at its core, it's an unconditional love. I love you whether it's unconditional. I love you whether you love me or give me anything back or not. It's a love of commitment regardless of payback. It's a love with no strings attached. Now, we normally read of God's agape love toward us, which makes sense, in that He loved us sacrificially. He sacrificed His own Son for us. We usually hear that we're supposed to have an agape or self-sacrificing love for one another, but it is quite unusual for us to be commanded to have an agape love for God. A self-sacrificing, supreme, unconditional love for God. What, is that? what does that mean? We ought to know that. Jesus just said it's the most important. It means I love God with no strings attached, with no thought of getting anything in return. It means I love God even if he never does anything for me. It means I love him because he's the king. And he deserves my undivided loyalty and my all-encompassing love. It's the first commandment. It's the love of the three Hebrew children they had for God when they faced the fiery furnace. Remember that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow down to your image because God is first. We love him. Not only that, we believe that God can save us from the fiery furnace. But, 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 but listen, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he is able to save us. But even if he doesn't save us, know this, we will still not bow down to your image. We love God. Even if he doesn't rescue us, we love him. He's the king. It's the love Job had for God in the middle of incredible pain. Job said, though he slay me. I will still hope in him. My love is not conditioned on what I get. He just deserves it. It's the love of 11 of the 12 disciples when they met a martyr's death. It's the love of every believer for God who loves him for who he is who doesn't treat God as a celestial vending machine, loving him for the gifts that he gives, but loving him with no strings attached, loving him because he's the king. I don't love him 
because he gives me gifts, although he does. I love him because he's God. For, for the Christian, what have you done for me lately? It's not part of our relationship with God. Jesus didn't stop there. You want to know the greatest commandment? I'll give you two for the price of one. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, contrary to what you may have heard, Jesus is not saying that in order to love people, you've got to love yourself first. Okay? Just bite what some therapist or counselor may have told you. He's not giving a self-love, self-esteem seminar. He presupposes that people love themselves and says the second commandment is just like the first, love them like you love yourself. Same word, by the way, agape love. Have a self-sacrificing love for your neighbor, which, by the way, Luke 10 says is pretty much everyone that you run into. It's not just people like you. It's not even just other Christians. Luke chapter 10, by the way, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's everyone around you. Love God and love those who have been created in his image, even though it doesn't look like it. Don't miss the order. We love God first. Then as a consequence, we love others. How do we love people around us best. Well, certainly we, I could preach an entire series on this, but certainly we meet their needs, we honor them, we take care of them, we do things like social justice. But listen to me, we love them best by introducing them to our king, to our greatest love. Love, Jesus says, is the epitome of the law. No greater commandment than these. It's not a love to get something back. It's not a self-serving love. It is a self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Love that that Jesus says in Matthew, love that way, Jesus says in Matthew, because all of the law and all of the prophets hang on these two. In other words, foundational to the other 611 laws are these two laws. You want to keep the other 611, you got to do these two first. Love God, love people. You see, if you love God the way you're supposed to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will obey him. It's that simple. Jesus said that in John chapter 15. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Our love for God is directly proportional to our obedience. You show me, I want to say this very gently but very firmly, you show me someone who is disobeying God, that means sinning, by the way, and I will show you someone who does not love God enough. You show me someone who is sinning, and I will show you someone who loves themselves more than they love God. Every time you make a decision to sin and go against God, you're saying, I love me more than you. That's what Jesus said. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Conversely, if you don't obey my commands, it means you don't love me. Love God with everything you've got. And then you won't have other gods before him. You won't bow down to idols. You won't take his name in vain. Love your neighbor like you're supposed to and you won't steal from him. You won't covet what he has. You won't murder him. You won't lie about him and you won't sleep with his wife. It's actually when we love ourselves too much with a selfish, sinful love that we disobey God and we sin against people. 
The whole law, Jesus said, hangs on these two commands. There is no greater law than these two. Love God, love people. The later writers of the New Testament capitalized on this truth. And Paul said in Romans chapter 13, owe nothing to anyone. Here's the only debt you're supposed to have. Love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Are you kidding me? Yep. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, the other 611, fill it in, is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love God with everything you've got and love people. That should describe us. Again, don't miss the order. Love God and as a consequence, love people. Don't think that you can keep the first one and ignore the second one. I love God, it's just people I can't stand. John warned against this over and over in his first letter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love is not born of God, for God is love. Anyone who says, anyone who says, I love God and hates his brother is a liar. You can't love God and hate people. You can't do it. whole law, all of our obedience can be summed up in these two red letter verses. Problem we face this morning again is familiarity. And I'm suggesting that we not be like the Pharisees who quoted this thing twice a day and had no idea what they were saying. God wants our hearts, every bit of them. And the only way that you can love God and love people is to allow him by his spirit, the indwelling presence of his spirit to transform you into the image of his son and to do it through you. Quickly then, we see the reply of the scribe. I've suggested that he was supposed to trap Jesus, but when he saw the interchange with the Sadducees, he was impressed. Further, when he asked the question, got the answer, he was impressed again. You got it right, teacher. By the way, this is the first time, I didn't know this, this is the first time that we find anyone combining these two laws as the epitome of the law. Others did it after him, but Jesus He was the first red-letter Jesus. All your commandments are summed up in these two commands, this guy said. To do these is more important than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Burnt offerings, whole offering consumed, sacrifices, part of it consumed, part given to the priest. The point is this. Anyone, anyone can give offerings. We took an offering. Anybody can tip God. It's external. It takes a true worshiper with a changed heart to love God and love people from the heart. So Jesus looks at the scribe and pressed with him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're starting to get it. All that's left is faith in me as the Messiah, the very son of God, believe the gospel. So here's my two questions for us as we close. First, does this describe us? It's the first thing that comes to people's mind when they think of Alliance Bible Fellowship. 
And I suspect that when people think of alliance, that's where you go to get the Bible. It's good, and I'm not going to change that. But I'm suggesting we should be known as a people who love God and love people. Second question, what's the difference with this scribe? Every scribe, again, I said at the beginning, every scribe in Mark's gospel is hostile. Even this one came with a hostile intent. What was the difference? Very simply, he listened to Jesus. He showed up and he gave Jesus an honest hearing. It's why that we encourage unbelievers, and, and, and maybe you were here this morning and you're exploring the claims of Christ, and, and, but you're interested, you, you're, you're on your way to the kingdom, you're on your way. It's why we encourage unbelievers or maybe even new believers, read one of the Gospels. Read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, read John. Why do we say that? Because you cannot read about the life of Jesus and not come away impressed. Read it, and you'll fall in love with Jesus like we did. Stand for prayer. So, Father, this is an incredibly important text. Your son, God in the flesh, asked the question. Rabbis debated. He was asked, what's first of all? And he gave us to love you, God, with everything that we have. And then as a result, love people. Would you please make me do that? Would you help us do that? As we're committed to the scripture, as we're committed to one another, by this shall all men know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. We want to do that. And, 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 and may we be seen in this community as a church, a group of followers of Jesus who love God and love people. In Christ's name, amen.